Please uh, grab your Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the, uh, the little shelf in front of you, and turn to the book of Isaiah this morning, Isaiah chapter 43. Uh, we've pretty much been singing our way through Isaiah 43 most of the uh, service. Uh, the children are in here with us today. Um, children are not released for Children's Church, so don't go anywhere. Uh, they're here because we want them to actually be here for communion so that they can actually witness the sacraments, the means of grace whereby God pours out upon his people his blessing. Uh, and our, for our nourishment, for our good. Uh, but we are working our way through the book of Isaiah, and we are again in Isaiah chapter 43. And, and I have to say this, let, let me preface this. I'm going I'm to preach this a little bit backwards today. I'm going to go back uh, just a section, and then I'm going to go to the end of Isaiah 43 uh, as, as by way of beginning and, and show us what the problem was in the midst of the people of Israel. Because the people of Israel are struggling right now. They're on, you know, for lack of a better term, a struggle bus. You know, they're, they're struggling to believe. They're struggling to be faithful. They're struggling to, to love the things that God has called them to love and to hate the things that God calls them to abhor and dismiss and to run away from. And, and I, I really, really liked um, Christ is Mine Forevermore this morning because it just so sums up. You know, because in, when it says in the very first, I'm, again, I'm preaching for the bulletin, but it's all right. You know, page five it's of our bulletin, it says, Christ is mine forevermore. Minor days that God has numbered, I was made to walk with him. That's true. We were made to walk with him. We see that in the garden. We see that in Genesis 1 and 2. Yet I look for worldly treasure, and I forsake the king of kings. That is essentially where we find the people of Israel. The people of Israel who have been redeemed by God, who have been called by God, who have been blessed by God, who have been taken out of slavery in Egypt and placed into a country that would be their own, they are now um, pursuing other gods. They're pursuing the world. Yet I look for worldly treasure and forsake the king of kings. That's what Isaiah chapter 43 is speaking about. They're forsaking the king of kings in order to pursue worldly treasures that give the illusion of actually satisfying their soul. But then, you know, we don't, we're not left there in that song. We're not left there within Scripture because it says, but mine is hope and my Redeemer. Though I fall, His love is sure. For Christ has paid for every failing. I am His forevermore. So I mean, that's, that's really the, the, the message today. I'm a broken sinner. <laughs> You know, I pursue the world, I pursue the things that I think are going to satisfy my soul. And yet, when I look up, God has made me to walk with Him. But my hope is not in my effort, my hope is not in my own obedience, but my hope is in Jesus' obedience on our behalf. My hope, my hope is in my Redeemer. Though I fall, His love is sure. Oh, praise God that Christ's love is sure in the midst of our broken, feeble efforts. For Christ has paid for every failing. I am his forevermore. So let's, let's look at that for a second. Uh, last week I talked about, um, and again, let me, uh, I'm going to work through the text. I'm, I'm going to read through it, but it's, it's a longer section. But because I'm preaching it backwards, um, you know, that's okay. We read Hebrews backward too, you know, so it's just the way it is. In Isaiah chapter 42, you see part of the problem with the people of God. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse um, 25, or actually in verse 19, 42, 19, it says, Who is blind but my servant, or deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is blind is my dedicated one, or blind is the servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. So what he's saying there is that people understand the commandments intellectually. 
they understand what they are called to do. That's why we actually, um, all catechisms, all good catechisms, work through the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is the moral law of God summarized so that we understand what we're called to do. And by the way, wasn't it great, if you're a parent today, as we read through the law and we read the Heidelberg Catechism, here's my favorite section in that Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day number 39, as I continue to preach through the bulletin. That, that I honor, love, and be loyal to my father and mother and all those in authority over me. That I obey and submit to them as is proper when they, are, when they correct and punish me. And also, and this is the part I loved, and also that I be patient with their failings. For through them God chooses to rule us. I'm so thankful that that actually says that. Because not only am I supposed to be charitable with regard to my parents as they, um, as they fail at times, but I pray that my children get that and they will be charitable to me as I fail them and hopefully point them and direct them towards Jesus. But what we see in the midst of Isaiah 42 is that people understand the commands of God. We understand them intellectually, but we go, you know, they're not convenient for me to obey. You're like, I understand what I'm supposed to do, but I don't want to do it. Like, I, I clearly understand what God is calling me to, but because it's not convenient or I don't like it, I you know, remove myself from it. And so because of that, God says, you know, why? Because of that, I'm actually going to bring some trials and tribulation in your life to correct you and to discipline you. So in the midst of chapter 42 at the end, it talks about you know, people who are basically not taking the word of God to heart. They are not taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So in verse 25 of Isaiah 42, he says, So he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand it burned him, but he did not take it to heart. So in the midst of the discipline of God, you know, we see that the people of God will not actually take it to heart what he's calling them to believe. And we see that sometimes with, with, with our children. We have four children, three of which are gone. Uh, to, they're not here today. Uh, and, and one of which is here, so I will not pick on William today. You know, I will not. But the others, they're fair game. You know, they're fair game, right? And I will tell you, one of those children who is not here um, today was just very obstinate. And she was hard, you know, at times. And I would, we would discipline her, and she would not take it to heart. And we would discipline her, and she would not take it to heart. Any of you parents have any ch- children like that? Just hard-headed, stubborn children that will not listen despite the best discipline and the love and the care that you give, they will not take it to heart. And that's what God is saying. So these people are not taking the word of God to heart. They dismiss his commandments. They abandon his ways. And then what we find here at the end of chapter 43, and we're going to get to the the good portion, but if you look at the end of chapter 43, um, look at what it says here. Um, This is, it's astounding what, what the people of God are doing here. Um. Look at verse 22. It says, Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You've not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You've not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. 
Your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. Now we see that in the midst of the discipline of the Lord. But look at what it says there. It says in verse 22, Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob. I have redeemed you. I have loved you. I have cared for you. I have over and over again throughout the history of Israel, I have cared for you. And yet, here's what it says. You are weary of me. But you have been weary of me. You have not worshipped me. You have become weary. So what does that say? It, it means that we are weary or bored with Yahweh, the, the covenant God. So, so we're bored. So, you know, there, there's a sense in which, you know, let me apply this directly. If we come to worship, there should be this expectation of awe as we come into worship. And, and yet... There have been times where I have done this, and I'm sure there have been times that you have done this because you're all a bunch of sinners. That you come and you're like, well, I'm kind of bored. You know, it's kind of boring. You know, like, man, I, I hope George finishes up soon. You know, I got places to be. I got stuff to eat. You know, I got things I want to do. And that's essentially what it says here. It's like, are we weary of Yahweh? Are we weary of worship? Have we gotten to the point where, where we're looking for something new and innovative? You know, where's the production value of worship, right? Like, we, where's the fog machine and the smoke and the lights and everything else, right? I mean, that's what, is that what we're looking for? You know, and, and yet what it says is, he's saying, no, I don't want you to lose your awe over who I am and what I have done for you. Um, Screwtape Letters is a book written by C.S. Lewis. And, and really, it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting book. And it's really two demons, who are dialoguing with one another about how to get people to fall in the midst of their Christian walk. Okay, so that's where it is. So it says this about this idea of novelty, you know, and, and the, um, the pleasure of novelty. You know, so one demon is instructing another demon about how to get people to fall, okay? So the pleasure, and here's what he says, the pleasure of novelty is by its very nature more subject than any other to the law of diminishing returns. And continued novelty costs money, so that the desire for it spells avarice or unhappiness or both. And again, the more rapacious this desire, the sooner it must eat up all the innocent sources of pleasure and pass on to those the enemy forbids. Thus, by inflaming the horror of the same old thing, we have recently made the arts, for example, less dangerous to us than perhaps they have ever been lowbrow and highbrow artists alike, being now daily drawn into fresh and still fresh excesses of lasciviousness, unreason, cruelty, and pride. Finally, the desire for novelty is indispensable if we are to produce fashions or vogues. And again, what he's saying there is that novelty and sort of the idea of yearning for newness all the time actually robs us of, of our ability to be in awe of what the Father has given us. And so there's, there's a sense in which when we come into worship, we should you know, glorify God and sing hallelujah for all that Jesus has done. And if we sit in the, in the chair and, and we go, hmm, Jesus died on the cross for my sins again. Yep, heard that one. That's, that's wrong. Like there should be a sense in which we go, Jesus, the, the Lord God of the universe, died so that I might have life. Like when we hear the truth of that, our hearts should explode. 
I mean, just absolutely explode with gratitude. And it should be such gratitude that literally the gratitude wells up in our heart, flows through us, and comes out of our mouth in praise to Him. That's what should happen. Now, I know that you come to worship weary sometimes. You come to worship tired. But that's when you need it more. Lord, fill me up. Lord, help me to be in awe of what you have done for me. Paul Tripp writes in a book um, of the same title, Awe. He says this. He said, God created an awesome world. And then this is, again, I'm, I'm talking about combating weariness, combating sort of our, our lack of novelty or, or thinking that we're bored. He says this, God created an awesome world. God intentionally loaded the world with amazing things to leave you astounded. The carefully air-conditioned termite mound in Africa, the tart crunchiness of an apple, the explosion of thunder, the beauty of an orchid, the interdependent systems of the human body, the inexhaustible pounding of the ocean waves, and thousands and thousands of other created sights, sounds, touches, and tastes. God designed all to be awesome, and he intended to you and he intended you to be daily amazed at what he has given. He goes on to write this. He says, every awesome thing in creation is designed to point you to the one who alone is worthy of capturing and controlling the awe of your searching and hungry heart. It is a travesty when you go to the beach and children are wrapped up in devices rather than being in awe of the constant pounding of waves in the ocean. There's, there's this beauty uh, in God's creation that calls us to be in awe, and, and, and it calls us to worship Him and to love Him. The other idea that you know, we see in the idea of, you know, um, and this is a book, you know, The Wisdom Pyramid by Brett McCracken, it's the, the horror of the same old thing. And really, when we look at the, the, the Bible, we look at the worship that we have, I mean, there's a sense in which when you come to worship, and you, you come, if somebody's been here for a couple weeks, they know we have an order of worship. We know that we have a call to worship and a prayer of invocation, and we kind of work our way through the catechism. And there's a sense in which we should not only be comfortable with that, but we should look forward to that, knowing that there is an order. But that order is meant to direct us towards God. Again, you know, um, our changing brains, I was just uh, amazed by this, with regard to um, how, how our um, attention span has diminished greatly. You know, in, the, in the, a book called The Shallows, Nicholas Carr calls the Internet a technology of forgetfulness and describes how, thanks to the plasticity of our neural pathways, our brains are literally being rewired by digital distraction. The more we use the web, the more we train our brain to be distracted, to process information very quickly and very efficiently, but without sustained attention. That explains why many of us find it hard to concentrate, even when we're away from our computers. Our brains become adept at forgetting, inept at remembering. Though we are reading a ton on our devices and screen, we actually read, get this, we actually read a novel's worth of words every day. It is not the sort of continuous, sustained, concentrated reading conducive to reflective thinking, you know, um, Wolf, a, psych, a psych, um, psychologist, says there is neither the time nor the impetus for the nurturing of a quiet eye, much less the memory of its, of its harvests. There's a sense in which we have become very distracted. We become very 
um, inept at actually thinking deeply. And what happens in the midst of God is that God shows us his beauty every day, but we become distracted and our brains are literally being rewired to dismiss the beauty around us. I mean, I've been to the Grand Canyon several times. When you get to the Grand Canyon, your mouth just drops wide open. But I will, I'm, I'm here to tell you that while you're also dropping your mouth open, there are children whose heads are down because they're on their iPad or their iPod, and they're like, yeah, whatever, I see it. And they're just playing. So rather than being awestruck, and, and there are adults there as well, right, doing the very same thing, rather than being awe of all that God has done, we become Weary of the same old, same old. Weary of worship. You know, dismissing His commands. I mean, that's, that's who we are. I mean, we dismiss God's commands. We become weary in worship. We struggle to pay attention sometimes. And that, that's where we are. But, but God doesn't leave us there. Look, look at, because sandwiched in between the, the depravity of my own heart, the distractedness of my own nature. Look at what God does in, in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. And this is, this is the beauty of it, because here it is. We're sinners. You know, Christ is mine forevermore, but I, I pursue worldly pleasures. But he says this in verse 1. He says, but now, thus says the Lord. And remember, he says this right after. It says, they did not take it to heart. And this is right before. He says, you become weary in worship. But in Isaiah 43, 1, but now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob... He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory." whom I formed and made. Now that, those first seven verses within Isaiah 43, they are beautiful verses that, that comfort us. Because here it is, you're like, I'm a sinner. I do not follow the commandments of God. I do not want to follow the commandments of God. And yet in the midst of that, our God still pursues us. Because it doesn't say, because you have done all these things right, I will be your God. But rather, it says something different. It says, but now, thus says the Lord, he who created you. So certainly we call God the Father as the one who created us, but even more so, he who formed you, O Israel. But it also, the idea of, of creation is one thing to be created, but it's the idea of forming. The idea that, that God is working in us, around us, to form us into a people for his own glory. That, that God is intimately involved in the details of the lives of his children so that he can lead them and he can guide them to himself. He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I mean, that is... Um, that is so comforting to know 
that regardless of how far I wander or how often my mind wanders away, that God continues to pursue me and to pursue me like the good shepherd that he is. I mean, how many, how many of us have, have dismissed the commandments of God? How many of us have disobeyed? How many of us have thought that worship is, is weariness? How many of us have thought, you know, like I could spend my time doing something better? And yet our God continues to pursue us and to love us. And he even says, for I have redeemed you. Now, the idea of redemption there, we, we see this in the New Testament. The, the idea is payment for, for really payment for sin. It's, the, it's the, the image of the marketplace. When we redeem something, we are purchasing something. And we see that our salvation is actually purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ at the cost of his life for us. I mean, we see this in verse 4. There's an allusion here where it says, I give men in return for you peoples in exchange for your life. There, there's the, this aspect of substitutionary atonement that, that what happens on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is that all of his righteousness, that he has always com- committed and been obedient to God's, God's commandments, all of his obedience is now credited to me and my sins, past, present, and future, are now put on Jesus. And the, and the wrath of God pours out upon Jesus for all of my sins, and I am forgiven. I mean, that's the gospel message. The gospel message is that you don't save yourself. You, you, you are incapable of saving yourself, but Jesus comes and he saves you, not because of the, you know, the meritorious works that you've done, but because God loves you and he's forming you. He created and has formed you. He's redeemed you. And he goes on to say, For I formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. He is calling us in the midst of you know, the proclamation of the prophets today in the church. He calls people um, through, the, through the preaching of his word, through the reading of his word. We, we see that God is calling people, sending out missionaries to call people to himself. And he says in verse 2, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. Now that is clearly an allusion to the Exodus. That is an allusion to walking through the water when Moses uh, parts the Red Sea and God does miraculous things. He says, when difficulty comes and you turn to me, like I will be with you. When difficulty arises, if you are my child, if you have believed and trusted in me, I will never leave you or forsake you. And I will tell you that that this right here, um, that I will be with you, the ever Present, God will be with you. You know, one of the ways that, that Satan, the world, and the flesh conspire against us is to isolate us so that we feel like we are alone and no one in the world is going through what we're going through. And yet God says, I will always be with you. There is never a time where I am not with you, caring for you, forming you, shaping you. And sometimes... He actually shapes us through the fire. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Now, I think that's an allusion to Shadrach, Meshach, uh, and Abednego into the future. But there's certainly this idea of the refiner's fire that the discipline of the Lord, um, he will bring about some difficulty in our life sometimes to draw us back to himself. And, And I find that to be true. I find that to be true in my own life. When things are difficult, I pray more. When things are um, a struggle in relationships, I turn to him more. 
But the promise of God is that he will always be with us. In, in, in verse 3, it says this. In verse 3, it says, For I, have the, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. What that's saying is, you know, for, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, meaning that when I make a promise to you, I will keep it. When I say that I will always be with you, I will always be with you. If I have sent my Redeemer, he will redeem you, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, I'm in verse 5, and from the west I will gather up. And the reason he does these things, he does these things, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. There's this sense in which, in verse 21, it says, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. There's a sense in which uh, the people of God who are called by God to, to worship Him and to exalt His name. One of the ways that we as a church are called is to send out missionaries. Now, what do missionaries do? Missionaries go out and they proclaim the, the name of Jesus so that other people who do not know the name of Jesus might actually praise Him and bend their knee and fall on their face and recognize that they're sinners and the only way that they can be saved is through Jesus. Now, now we see this as, as we continue on. Um, you know, we see this, bring out the people who are blind. I'm in verse 43, chapter 43, verse 8. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. Now this is, this is sort of the, the idea of a law court, that, that, that God is bringing out the people in the midst of his, his justice. And all the nations gather together and the people assemble who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Essentially, he's saying, how can you, and this is really sort of a Job-like passage, where, like, were you around when I created the world? Were you around when I created Adam and Eve? I mean, were you there? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God also henceforth. I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy King, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down and they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I have formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Man, there's a whole bunch in there. There's like a whole month's worth of sermons. But I got about five minutes, so let me sum it up. Okay? Here's what we see. Notice what it says. There's this particular word in verse 10 um, where it says in 10 and 11, he says, you know, that you may know and believe me and understand. There's, there's this idea that, that, that knowing who God is, believing in him and understanding him, and then he says that I am he. Now that word is, is significant. Matter of fact, you can underline it. You should probably circle it because that I am he 
And, and again, in verse 11, he says, I, I am the Lord. That is where most likely Jesus is picking up all of the I am statements in the Gospel of John. So when Jesus in the Gospel of John is saying, I am you know, the light, I am the resurrection, I am the good shepherd, I am the gate, I am the, um, you know, I, I'm the bread of life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When he's saying, I am all of those things, he is referencing most likely this particular you know, phrase right here in Isaiah chapter 43. He's saying, I am he, I am the Lord. And before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And notice what it says there too. He goes, can anyone be saved apart from God? Pretty clear in verse 11. It says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. You will hear people all over the world saying, yeah, but you know, there's, aren't there many pathways to God? They just call him something different. The Bible says, no. There is one name under heaven whereby we must be saved. You know, in John 14, it says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except me. Isaiah 43 says, and besides me, there is no Savior. Yahweh is our Redeemer. He is our Savior. And besides me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I declared and saved and proclaimed. He declared that a Savior would come. He saved when Jesus showed up. And now it's our job in partnership with the Father through the power of the Spirit to proclaim His name to those who have never heard. That's what we're called to do. The idea there is is one of salvation for us. The idea that, that we are only saved through the Lord. And then when we think about Jesus and we think about the cross and we think about his obedience in this life and we think about the tenderness of Jesus, there is a sense in which we should be in awe of our salvation. Brothers and sisters, do you get weary in the midst of worship? Do you get distracted in the midst of reading your Bible or prayer? Do you hear the commands of God and understand them but just... I want to do it. Are you obstinate in your heart? Are you disobedient in your thought life? Do you lack self-control? I do. I mean, I, I lack self-control. I mean, how, how many of us, how many of us, you know, we eat a little bit too much ice cream sometimes, you know? You know? You know, I, I got to admit, you know, the best way for me not to eat ice cream is not to have it in the house. You know? How many of us uh, sometimes go to pick up our Bible and our phone rings, and then we forget about it. Or in the midst of trying to pick up our Bible, we get distracted from the other things that are going on. How many of us in the midst of our prayer lives get distracted, and then we feel guilty, and then we feel guilty so we don't pray, and then we don't pray because we feel guilty, and then there's this cycle that just goes on in our hearts. And yet, and yet, but now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. He saves us. He loves us. He keeps his promises to us. That is the beauty of the gospel. Now, will there be difficulties in this life? Absolutely. Will the Lord allow difficult things in our life? Yes, he will. 
As a matter of fact, when it says in in verse 14, I'll finish with this. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. Essentially, he's saying, I'm going to send the people of God into exile for their own good so that they might trust and believe in me. In in Psalm chapter 89, Psalm 89, verse 30 through 34, it says this, If the children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. So what does that say? It says that in the midst of our own disobedience, God will sometimes bring about um, discipline for his children, but he will not remove his steadfast love towards you. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we would understand what it means to be loved and cared for. And I pray that we would understand what it means to be forgiven. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we think about all that Jesus has done for us, Father, I pray that we would live in the midst of being in awe. Father, that you alone are awesome. And Father, I pray, Lord, that we would honor you with our lips and with our hearts. And Father, I pray, Lord, that the love of Christ would so just explode out of our hearts, that explodes into praise for you, for all that you have done. So Father, help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.